And my purpose this morning is to uh, introduce a new sermon series that, God willing, is going to take us up to Christmas. And the text for this series is going to be Genesis beginning with chapter 37 and going through chapter 50, through the end of the book. The banner over this sermon series we're calling Becoming a Company of Peoples. Becoming a Company of Peoples. And we get that banner, that title, from God's promise made to Jacob, one of the main characters in this narrative. A promise that is repeated three times in Genesis. First in Genesis 28, verse 3. And then again in Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. And then again in Genesis chapter 48, verse 4. And here's the promise that God makes to Jacob. God says, I will make you. I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples. Now, now the Lord's not promising to Jacob Fortune 500 success in business. The word company here is the word that we often and also translate community. It's the word that we translate congregation. It's the same word in the New Testament that is translated church. And this is really crucial, right? This is, it's crucial, so listen carefully. In contrast to prior generations recorded in the book of Genesis, when God sovereignly chose one family member out of a number of family members to bear the line of of this promise, God is now telling Jacob, I'm going to take your whole family. I'm going to take your whole family. I'm going to take all 12 of your sons, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to make your entire family into one harmonious, worshiping community, namely the nation of Israel. I'm going to work on you. I am going to put my engraving tool to use on you. I'm going to hold you with all your brokenness and all your failures and all your family dysfunction and sin. And I'm going to transform you into a company of peoples. This is, this is way more now than simply becoming a national entity and taking possession of some geographical real estate. God is promising, I'm going to make you into a community of spiritual descendants that will extend beyond the physical family of Israel and encompass peoples from every tribe and every language and every nation on earth. Or to say it another way, I will build my church And neither your sin or the sins of your sons nor even the gates of hell will prevail against it until all the earth 
is filled with praise to God and to King Jesus for His glorious and redeeming grace. Now, there's a lot more to say by way of introduction, and I'll get to that probably next week, <laughs> and then maybe the week after that. But for now, let's, let's get a hold of this text, and I'm going to read Genesis chapter 37, and this morning we are going to focus on verses 1 through 11. So, hear the word of the Lord. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's, that's Jacob, Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him, Jacob made for Joseph, a robe of many colors but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold! We were binding sheaves in the field, and, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams, and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. These words are inspired by God. Let's pray. just always have to pause and marvel that you, O oh Lord, maker of heaven and earth, have communicated yourself to us. You, you've inspired words of Scripture through which we hear 
your voice. Thank you, God. Thank you for communicating yourself to us. And today, we're asking that through the Holy Spirit, through your breath, again, you might bring illumination to the things that you have inspired to be recorded for us and that you would communicate yourself by the Spirit through the Gospel of our Lord Jesus, through spiritual gifts, through graces communicated to your people, through one another, through the church. And we are here to listen to you and we are here to respond to you. And so, Lord, have your way with us now. Come, Holy Spirit, and fall fresh on us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the message of Genesis 37 through 50, in a nutshell, is of God's redeeming grace to restore and transform and redeem a very broken family. The focus of Genesis chapter 37 in particular is uh, it's not about brotherly love. It's rather about brotherly hate. In spite of the fact that the word brother or brothers is used 20 times in this chapter, tells you where the focal point is. This is a story of siblings that cannot get along. And it's worth noting that brothers don't get along well anywhere in the book of Genesis. The theme of brother against brother, the theme of civil war, started with Cain against Abel, and then Isaac against Ishmael, and then Jacob against Esau. And so it's no surprise then that here we are Discovering there is, there is no endearment between Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob's sons. We, we could just call them the Jacobsons, I guess, you know. They have their own reality TV show. <laughs> the Kardashians and the Jacobsons. Anyway. Um, clearly, God did not choose Abraham's lineage because they were better representatives of traditional family values than their pagan neighbors. That is, unless you count favoritism and murderous envy as virtues worthy of God's blessing. Keep that in mind. So, the focal point, then, of Genesis chapter 37, 1 through 11, is is a broken and dysfunctional family. And lest we mistakenly take Joseph as some hero here, like... You know, he's, he's the one flower among all the thorns. Think again. Described as a boy pasturing the flock with his brothers. This is less about telling us something about his age and more to do with telling us something about his job description. This was, 
This was his task. As, as, as the youngest of brothers, he was assigned all the menial, unimportant things to do. And, it's, you know, it's interesting. Though shepherding in, uh, in the Bible is often portrayed as a, it's a significant occasion for cultivating really good things in one's life, like spiritual intimacy with God, hearing God's voice, personal worship, like it did for, for men, shepherds like Moses and shepherds like David, or, or for accomplishing profound faith-based, faith-building exploits, like you know, protecting sheep from lions and bears and, you know, things like that. This is an, an occasion to rise up. Joseph, instead, turned shepherding into an occasion for bringing a bad report home on his brothers. Look at verse 2 again. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, in English, this, this word translated bad report, it, it, to us, it could, it could be go either way. You know, it could be something true. It could be something false. Who knows? But in the original language, this phrase has the connotation of malice and deceit. It's the same vocabulary that Moses uses. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. It's it's the same vocabulary Moses uses in Numbers chapter 13, verse 32, when referring to the bad report the spies brought to the people regarding the land of Canaan. It's like, there's giants There's giants in the land. There's a lot of trouble waiting for us out there. It's not worth fighting for. So there's some truth in it, but but the motive is to cast things in a pretty dark light. There are other places where the same phrase is used in the Old Testament where it's translated slander. The point is, is that Joseph did not like his brothers. And he apparently didn't like being a servant to his brothers. And so he brought back home a fabricated or perhaps exaggerated account to their father of of their misdeeds. And, And so Joseph, rather than being the hero played his own part in perpetuating the brokenness and the division in a household, in a household made up of children of different mothers. A conflict that was accented by referring to them as the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. And then there's Joseph's handling of the dream. He already already knew his brothers hated him for his favored status. And and yet, when he he recounts these dreams that that point to the fact that he's he's not only his father's favorite, 
But now apparently he's God's favorite as well. You know, it's, it's, the tone is, you just get the sense that he's even not rubbing their noses in it. You know, he's rubbing their noses in his exaltation. It, it's one thing to tell his brothers the first dream. And, you know, get a negative response. Bitter response. But then for him to turn right around and recount to them the second dream. It's like, what kind of a moron are you? I mean, such arrogant insensitivity of disgusting proportion. This, this young Joseph is a piece of work. And like so many others who possess early on such discernible, pronounced, remarkable talent and potential, Joseph is just full of himself and in grave danger of his giftedness taking him down. He is a young man in desperate need of God's transforming, redeeming grace. Well, then there's the dad. Jacob's brokenness as a father to this broken family. The the special coat, it's important to note, was not the first pointer to Jacob's preference for Joseph. Those of you who are familiar with the Genesis story know that Jacob had been profoundly estranged from his brother Esau. He, he deceived him. He lied to him. He stole from him. Um, and it was bitter. And at one point when Jacob heard that Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men, Jacob assumed that his brother was planning an assault to take him out. And so for that reason, young Joseph and his mother Rachel were tucked safely away at the back of the caravan while the older brothers and their mothers were kind of sent out to the front as, you know, form a, a bit of a human shield, right? And uh, how would it make you feel uh, to know that your father considered you expendable? And then there's the coat. Not a technicolor dream coat. But rather more literally a royal cape. And and the point of the coat is um, it's not something that you would have worn if you were planning to go to work. In the context of this story, that's, that's the deal. Joseph goes to work under his brothers. You know, this, the sequence is really huge. He goes out to work under his brothers. His account of their performance is slanted in order to put them in a bad light. And then his dad rewards him with this fancy outfit. And then later in verse 12, when the brothers are Back at work, Joseph's not out there with them. He's back at home, in his cape, feet up, chilling. 
It is no wonder that they hated his guts. Now, of course, Jacob was repeating the toxic family pattern from his own upbringing, right? It's, you know, it's a tragic reality uh, that we, we can all identify with to some degree or another, that we often perpetuate the family dysfunctions we experienced around us as children. And in Jacob's family, his father, Isaac, preferred Esau, while Jacob's mother uh, was his mother's, Jacob was his mother's favorite. And now here he is doing the exact same thing with his own kids. So you got a broken dad. And then there are the brothers who are united in hating the dreamer. You know, it says a lot when siblings can't even say hi to each other. Hey, morning. How's it going? What's up? Verse 4 says, literally, they, they could not say shalom to him. There's no peace. There's no aloha. There's no warmth. There's no tenderness. There's no connection. And that was all before the dreams started. After the dreams, they hated him even more. It, it, it's, um, it's significant probably for us to register that Joseph's brothers were, uh, they were they were dangerous men. In uh, Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, his brother Reuben, in an act of just mind-boggling, rebellious disregard for both morality and for family honor, has sex with his stepmother. And then in Genesis chapter 34, verses 25 to 26, Joseph's brothers Simeon and Levi, in an act of vengeance, slaughter every man in an unsuspecting village. And in response to these, like, completely outrageous acts, Jacob did absolutely nothing. It's passive. So there's this ominous vibe in the story, even before we get to the, the really nasty crimes at the end of this chapter. This is a profoundly broken family. So if point one, observation one, is we have a terribly broken family, and the second point is that there is profound encouragement for this broken family. Well, then, where is the encouragement? Where is God in this? He, I mean, he is not even mentioned in this narrative. No reference to the Lord. That's instructive to us, right? What do we do? How do we respond when it seems that God is not discernibly present. 
Where is God? And it's at those times when it is absolutely crucial for us as the people of God to be mindful of the providence of God. Providence of God or His his invisible workings of causing and sustaining and maintaining and protecting and working all things out according to the purpose of His will. Throughout the Joseph narrative, God is in fact working all the details of the story together to bring about His purposes in each of the characters, each of their lives. In these first 11 verses, God's most discernible, apparent act is in sending Joseph prophetic dreams. But what was he thinking? What was God God doing? Why, Why would God toss, I mean, this is like tossing a lighted match into a bitter powder keg of family brokenness. The Lord certainly would have known what was going to come of a situation where you've got this, it's just set up for crisis. And yet it is precisely because God is omniscient and precisely because God is sovereign that he can do this because God knew exactly how Joseph would respond to the prophetic dreams. God knew exactly what would happen and how He would use every scrap of pain and suffering and brokenness in this family to shape the individual lives of the members of this family into something redemptive and beautiful and great and thus to accomplish His saving purpose not only for this family but through them for the sake of his praise and blessing to the nations. There's nothing careless or random about God sending these prophetic dreams. It was part of God's perfect plan and order to bring into being, to bring into being his chosen, united, worshiping community. It set into motion something that only God could do. That is building out of this broken family a company of peoples. God's redemptive ways are clearly not our ways. I mean, which of us would choose, if we had the choice, to grow up in a a broken family that would explode in scandalous sin? In our own lives, I'm speaking for me, uh, I, I know there's kind of a knee-jerk temptation to quickly assume that wherever there's some horrific tragedy or when you see relationships shatter or there's some traumatic sin scarring, there's scar tissue in our lives, that God must have been surely absent in those times. loved ones, nothing could be further from the truth. Certainly God hates sin. He neither causes it, nor does He condone it. We are 
responsible for our own sins which flow from our own wicked hearts. But loved ones, listen. God's redemptive pathways do not lead us out the back door and around conflict and out the back door and around abuse or divorce or dysfunctional families or even away from the expression and the outworking of our own sinful natures. Instead, God's perfect plan for our lives often takes us right through the eye of the storm where our brokenness and where our sin, along with that of the rest of our family members and our friends, is on full display, tragic display. And He does it so that the gospel of His powerful grace and His sovereign mercy can be equally and powerfully on display. You see, God is already at work in this text. Transformation needed to happen in Joseph's heart. The the, the arrogant, overconfident, self-centered young man was in no way, shape, or form ready at this stage of his life for the kind of leadership that God was preparing for him. God had works prepared in advance for him to walk in. He had a storyline that it was necessary for Joseph to walk through so that he would be prepared for those works. And God had it all figured out and planned in advance. And so God's schooling for Joseph included a period, a lengthy period, a very lengthy period of cooling his heels on the sideline, waiting and waiting where he would be trained through trials and temptations and suffering. Joseph's path through spiritual growth and preparation for leadership involved It involved abuse and mistreatment. It involved separation from his home and from his family. It involved having his reputation dragged through the mud. It involved being neglected and forgotten for years by the very people that he helped. But he needed it. He needed this long schooling. This long season of training. This long, deep lesson in order to learn complete, total reliance upon God. There's no way you're going to lead a nation rightly and wisely without it. Something that he could have never learned if he was sitting back, chilling at home in his cool cape. Perhaps you're in the same phase of God's developmental process in your life. You feel like your life is on hold. Or worse, like God's forgotten you. Your gifts aren't recognized. There's no opportunity for you to to really show what you can do. Perhaps you've been mistreated. 
or betrayed, or you wonder if God's ever going to open a door for you to serve in some meaningful way. Maybe you're watching your whole life implode around you on account of some catastrophic sin, whether it's yours or somebody else's. And the question is, how do you respond to that? Maybe you don't have some prophetic dream to fall back on like Joseph did. You know, for, for all the ways that that dream just opened up doors of conflict, <laughs> for all the ways that those, those dreams set in motion all kinds of hurt and pain, at the same time, it strengthened Joseph's faith, I'm sure, in the darkest of times. You, didn't, you haven't had one of those happen for you yet. Nobody's said on a Sunday morning, I think God's got a word for you. But you still have the solid promises of God recorded for all times here. Promises like, He started a good work in you. He's not going to stop. He's going to bring it to completion. Joseph wasn't ready yet. But God was at work to make him so. Joseph's brothers weren't ready either for their part in the leadership of this company of peoples. Their training program is a little bit different than Joseph's. They got a, they got a double major in the departments of sin and repentance. These guys were sick. They're sick men. Can you imagine? We'll read about it next week, but they throw their brother into a pit and then they casually sit down and have lunch together. That's wrong. They, they callously, they callously deceive their own dad into believing that his favorite son had been killed and eaten by some wild animal. Sick. But, as we track their stories, we're going to see them change. We're going to see them change and we're going to see their hearts soften precisely because, precisely through the experience of their own ridiculous sin and brokenness. The light's going to go on. The Spirit of God's going to bring illumination. And they're going to feel it. The depth of it. The reality of it. Which they probably would not feel the depth and reality of had it not been as extreme and awful as it was. And maybe that's where you are right now, at some low point of seeing your sinfulness like more clearly than you've ever seen it before. This is part of God's developmental process in your life. I can tell you, it was years and years and years and years before I felt fully. Uh, it's a gift from God when our conscience goes into revolt. Some never experience that. 
And maybe you find it confusing or confounding that God like doesn't protect you more from sinning. Like what, what's, what is God doing when he just seems to kind of turn you over to your sin? Why didn't he just reach down and take us out of that? Rescue us out of that. Don't do that. Loved ones, our sin is also a part of God's developmental process in our lives. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God is the author of sin. It just comes naturally and readily from us. All the Lord has to do is just leave us to ourselves for a moment and we will give in to temptation in whatever shape or form it comes. Beware of thinking that somehow we are better than Jacob's broken family. Pride, anger, hurtful words, passive-aggressive silence, punishing, rumor-spreading, designed to bring other people down and to exalt oneself. We're all there. And yet God has good purposes even for my sin. God can use my... (laughs) can use my inability to control my tongue to expose my arrogance and to humble me. Because it usually comes back and smacks me in the face. The presence of remaining sin in our lives repeatedly causes us, chastens us, shows us That God did not choose us because of what wonderful people we are. Far from it. We are all broken and rebellious people who left to ourselves cannot remain faithful to Him for a second. But our God is a great Savior for great sinners like the Jacobsons and like us. And we have a God who revels in rescuing and redeeming hopeless cases and lost causes and turning them into a, this is the miracle, turning them into a united community, a a redeemed company of peoples who together worship Him and exult in His grace and not their own goodness. So these brothers, God was at work even at the beginning. And then there's, of course, Jacob. Though he's well on his way to becoming an old guy. God's work was not yet done in him either. He has already been for many years in God's training school of suffering. His own sin had been repeatedly exposed He had been brought to repentance again and again and again and again. And yet still, he had made just just little steps on the road to wisdom and righteousness. After all these years of learning, he still had a few more classes in which to learn that God's providence can be wholly trusted to fulfill all that God has promised. And perhaps that's where you're at today. Puzzled 
dismayed, frustrated by the slowness of your progress and spiritual maturity. <laughs> oh man, for heaven's sake, you'd think I'd be a little bit more stable in my faith now. <laughs> Where's God at work in your life this morning? Perhaps, perhaps He's showing you that you are never going to outgrow your need of His grace and power. That would be a helpful lesson if you have not learned that. You need Him every bit. You will need Him every bit, if not more. I believe more when you're 85 or coming up on 65 than when you are 25 or 35 or 45. Maybe a 55-er in this room. Loved ones, as long as we live in this world, you are going to experience the reality that you are at best, a mixture of sinner and saint. Joined to Christ, you're as justified today as you're ever going to be by Jesus' righteousness, and yet in some ways you are, you're probably as far from living out the full implications of that reality as you've ever been. Now, Genesis 37 to 50 is, is not merely about what God is up to in the lives of Jacob, Joseph, and the brothers. It is about what God is up to in a redeemed people, in redeeming a people, in making a company of peoples for himself in Christ. You see, Joseph, his life foreshadows Jesus' life in, in many significant ways. Jesus willingly humbled himself and entered the school of suffering and temptation. Jesus set aside his royal robe of honor and the safe place at his father's side as the chosen favorite. He left behind his glory and exposed himself to a world that would reject him and scorn him and abuse him and hate him and ultimately kill him. And during his earthly ministry, his own brothers did not believe in him. And in spite of how hurtful that must have been, he never responded with hatred in return. He, he never built himself up at the expense of others. He didn't slander anybody. You know, we quickly judge and condemn anyone who doesn't measure up to our standards of righteousness, but, but Jesus was patient and long-suffering even with those who nailed Him to a cross. And what was God the Father thinking? Willingly sending His beloved Son into such a broken mess of sinful, dysfunctional humanity giving him a physical body that could be tortured and wounded. The Father was thinking of you and me when he did that. He's thinking of us and our families. And he was thinking of the nations. And he was thinking of the church that he was creating and calling into existence. A new, harmonious, worshiping, witnessing community of redeemed sinners. That's what God was thinking. 
And to reach that goal, Jesus took upon Himself the punishment that all our sin deserves so that now the the discovery of our sin need not crush us, but instead might lead us to feel fresh and real affection for the Lord, passion for His grace to us in Christ. And to accomplish this, Jesus endured the Heavenly Father's rejection on the cross where all of God's perfect and pure hatred of sin was poured out on His head. He was forsaken. He was abandoned by the Father. Placed under a curse so that we might be included. Included forever in the Father's blessing. And as a result, our standing today before God does not depend upon our best efforts to love our brothers and sisters, whether in our literal families or in this church. And so, and so look again right now to Jesus' perfect obedience. Look again and praise Him passionately that in Him there is hope and there is rest and there is forgiveness, and there is a future for the most broken individuals in families. Let's pray. Pray, Father, for <clears throat> pray for siblings this morning. That you'd impart to them humility and tenderheartedness and the, the powerful grace to take steps toward forgiveness and restoration. I pray for parents this morning that you'd communicate your blessing, especially to to those who have been perhaps more passive than they ought to have been regarding the sins of their, their kids. Or those who have been, they've responded to the sins of their children with, with fear and harshness. It's exposed their idolatries. It's exposed their inability to trust you. It's exposed how far they are from trusting you. God bless them. Turn them to you. Pray blessing on dads and moms. I pray blessing on sons and daughters. I pray blessing on brothers and sisters. And I pray blessing on this people here, God, that you would, you would be asserting yourself even today in uh, making us into a company of peoples that might be a blessing to the nations. We might need a lot more schooling. <laughs> we might. And in the meantime, I pray that you'd, you'd just uh, fill us with faith as we look, look, look to Jesus Christ, our Savior. In His name I pray, amen.